Well, hi everyone. I hope you've been navigating this season of restrictions as best you can. I feel like each season of a lockdown has, has taught me a little something about myself. I reckon when the first lockdown came around, I learned that hand hygiene and hand sanitizer hadn't really been that big part of that bigger part of my life before now. And then with subsequent lockdowns, I started to recognize that I didn't, I didn't like this idea and feeling of being isolated and disconnected from everyone. Well, I think with this lockdown, I've actually learned something quite different. I've learned that when I get busy, I tend to be really poor at following through on the things that I commit to. I'll give you a couple of classic examples. I'll tell my wife, Melody, that I'll be finished work in an hour or so, ready for dinner. And then I get caught up in things and I'm in there for another two or three hours and I finally come out and my meal is that last solitary plate on the kitchen table and everyone else is well and truly finished and long gone. Or I'll say something along the lines of, I just need to send one more email and then I get stuck on the phone and caught in all sorts of other emails and it's a long time before they see me again. Or I'll say to the kids, I'll go on a bike ride or I'll play some sport or I'll play a game, whatever it might be, but I need constant reminding before I follow through on it. Now, my point is not to, to make me out as the world's worst husband or father, which is probably what I've achieved so far. My point is to highlight that when something is dependent on my performance, it will inevitably have problems. Now, I'm sure this problem isn't just isolated to me, though. I'm sure each of you have probably heard the saying, I'm only human. Well, wired into that saying or built into it is an acknowledgement that we are not perfect people. And when the outcome of something is dependent on human performance or perfection, it is destined to have problems. I'm a lawyer by profession and a huge component of my profession is based around the reality that people often fall short of following through on what they commit to or promise. How much more will this be true when it comes to the topic of our own salvation? If there is any component of our salvation which is based on our own works or our own performance, then we are going to have problems. And this was the issue with what the Bible referred to as the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was a covenant of salvation for God's people. But it revolved around a set of laws and standards that required perfection and which was administered by a flawed priesthood which ultimately hinged on the faithfulness of God's people to that covenant. And so the author of Hebrews uses chapter 8 to remind us that this old covenant was not a bad covenant, but it was only ever intended to point us towards something better, a better covenant that would be ushered in and established through God's only Son, Jesus Christ. So it's this idea of a better covenant which we'll be focusing on this week as we look at Hebrews chapter 8. And there's two aspects of this covenant that we're going to be drawing out as to why this was a new and better and greater covenant. The first is that this covenant was established through a better priest. And we see that highlighted in verse 1 to 5. And the second is that this new covenant was established through better promises. And we see that come through in verse 6 to 13. 
So we've got this new covenant that's come in and it's established through a better priest and it's established through better promises. And by looking at those two components of this new covenant, I pray that it will help us to depend on Christ alone for our salvation and to let his promises provide us with hope. So let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 8 this week together. But before we get there, having just said that, let's just remember where we got to at the end of chapter 7. See, chapter 7 highlighted how Jesus was a priest in the order of everyone's favourite person, Melchizedek. And by describing Jesus in that way, the author was highlighting that Jesus was a person appointed as both priest and king by God himself. He was without beginning or end. In other words, he's a priest forever. He's an eternal priest. He wasn't just a priest who was on earth for a time, but he was a permanent priest that was to act in that capacity for all time. Therefore, Christ was established in chapter 7 as the once and for all God-appointed priest and king. And this leads us into the transitional words that we find right at the start of chapter 8 where the author says, Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. In other words, if I lost you through chapter 7, with all that talk around Melchizedek, then just listen to this. The main point of what I'm saying is this. And then he goes on to say this in verse 1 to 2. He says, We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, And who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by mere human beings. In other words, Jesus Christ is our heavenly high priest. This is what the author describes as the main point of what he is saying that Jesus is our heavenly high priest. And there's two things in those verses that make him our heavenly high priest. The first is that he's our heavenly high priest because he now sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. This reminds us of a few things. It reminds us firstly of his authority, that he is the authority as the son of God, the only one who is entitled to sit down at the right hand of our creator, perfect, holy God. And it also reminds us of his acceptance before a holy God. It demonstrates his own perfection that he is then able to enter into, be in the presence of God himself. And lastly, it reminds us of the completeness of his work on the cross. The words, it is finished, which he spoke on the cross as he gave his life is now demonstrated by the way he is welcomed into the very presence of God and then sits down at his right hand as a demonstration of the completeness and fulfillment of his work. So Jesus is our heavenly high priest because he sits down at the right hand of God, a fact that testifies to his authority, his acceptance and the completeness of his work. But not only that, He's our heavenly high priest because he serves in a heavenly sanctuary or the true tabernacle. Unlike the priest before him, Jesus' service was not in a physical man-made sanctuary or tabernacle or later temple. 
Jesus' place of service was in the true and better sanctuary in heaven itself, in the presence of God, where he continues to intercede and minister for us and on our behalf. So Jesus is being established as our high priest, who is our heavenly and better high priest, with a heavenly ministry who's been appointed by God himself over a new heavenly work and a new heavenly covenant. A covenant which is not based on man's effort or performance here on earth. And this contrast between an earthly priesthood and a heavenly priesthood is then built on further in verse 3 to 5 of this chapter. Let me read what it says in those verses. It says, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. The core role of the priest, which we're reminded of in these verses and which has been brought out a number of times already in the early chapters of Hebrews, was to offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of God's people. So he reminds us, the author here, that Jesus was no different. But the nature of his sacrifice was, of course, entirely different. The former priesthood offered gifts and sacrifices according to the law or as prescribed by the law. These were sacrifices of animals. They were the shedding of blood that was done under the law as atonement for sins, to cover over the sins of the people. They were offered at a, at a physical location, being originally the tabernacle when the laws were first handed down to Moses, as we read about as we worked through the book of Exodus together. And then later it became the temple. And they were undertaken strictly in accordance with Old Testament laws and customs. But the author makes it clear that Jesus was not that kind of priest, because he says if Jesus were on earth, he would not even be a priest. Even when Jesus lived and walked and talked and taught during his life here on earth, he was not that kind of priest. He was not the one that would continue administering a regime of animal sacrifices. He was not the one who would continue to spend his time in a man-made temple. In fact, he was probably better known for clearing out that temple. For Jesus was a heavenly high priest who knew that these places and gifts and sacrifices were nothing but a copy or a shadow of what is in heaven. A copy or shadow of the work that he was about to undertake, the gifts, the sacrifice that he was about to make as God's appointed heavenly high priest. Now, I like the idea of a shadow which it uses in these verses to describe the earthly ministry of the former priesthood compared to the heavenly ministry of Jesus' priesthood. You see, if I go for a walk in the evening with my family, I'll often be able to see their shadows behind them. At least I'm starting to see them now in the warmer months. You don't see much of a shadow in winter, but now the shadows are re-emerging. But these shadows... They're nothing more than an outline of my wife and kids. And if all I had to look at was their shadows, well then, I would get some sort of idea of their general features. 
I might get an idea of who was taller than the other, the fact that they've got two arms, two legs, a head, you know, the general outline of their bodies, but that's about it. Their shadows are nothing more than an outline of them, and they pale in comparison to the real thing. When you look at the real thing, you see their hair, you see their eye colour, you see their complexion, and you get to know their personality for who they really are, and you see the, the complete picture of them. In the same way, the author is telling us that the old covenant and the old priesthood and the old sacrificial system was but a shadow of what would be revealed through Christ. The outline of a sacrificial system that would be revealed on the cross. The blood of animals was but a, sh a shadow of the blood of Christ that would be spilt on our behalf. The killing of sacrifices, but a shadow of the execution of Christ himself on the cross on our behalf. The former priesthood, but a shadow of our heavenly high priest. The earthly sanctuaries, but a shadow of the true sanctuary in heaven in which Christ dwells. And the old covenant, but a shadow of the glory and beauty of the new covenant, which is to be and has been established through Christ. It's interesting the way the author then quotes from Exodus. In verse Hebrews 8, verse 5, he quotes from Exodus 25, verse 40, where it says, This is why Moses warned, when he was about to build the tabernacle, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. In Exodus 25, God is giving them instructions around how to um, establish the tabernacle and all its furnishings. There was the ark, the table, the bread of the presence, the golden lampstand, the altar, all the things which, again, we talked about during our series in Exodus. But these things as well, they were just a pattern or a blueprint or an outline of, of something else, something greater and more permanent a heavenly dwelling place, a heavenly priest, a heavenly sacrifice and a heavenly covenant, all of which has been made known in its fullness through Christ, our heavenly high priest. So why does it matter that Jesus is our heavenly high priest? Well, because it reminds us that this new and better covenant has been established by God himself in the heavenly places through his heavenly son, Jesus Christ, by a heavenly sacrifice on the cross. And so unlike the old covenant, it is not in any way dependent on our own work or performance or efforts here on earth. The old covenant was dependent on man and was mediated through a flawed earthly priesthood. And it was only ever intended, therefore, to be a shadow or a blueprint or a copy or an outline of what was to come because God knew, he knew that we needed a new and better covenant, a covenant of salvation that was not in any way linked to us but was solely dependent on the heavenly work of our heavenly high priest. The truth from these verse five verses that you can grab hold of is that God's new and better covenant can be trusted 
because it's dependent on Christ and not on us. I think it's good to consider whether our walk with God reflects a dependence on ourself or a dependence on Christ, our heavenly high priest. Do we try and impress or appease God through our own offerings or actions, or do we instead acknowledge that our only way to ever please God is through Christ alone? Do we try and ignore or somehow deal with or manage our own sin, or do we let it drive us towards Christ, who offered the once and for all eternal sacrifice for our sin? Do we tend to place our security in our performance or our generosity or our reputation rather than finding that security in Christ and recognising that it is only through him that we can enter into and enjoy this new and better covenant with our creator God? God's new and better covenant can be trusted because it is solely dependent on Christ and not on us. But not only do we have a new and better covenant, which was established through a better priest, in verse 6 to 13 we see that we have a new and better covenant which is established on better promises. In verse 6, we get this critical verse, and unsurprisingly, it's located right in the middle of this chapter. It says this, But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now, a covenant is ultimately a promise of God which is made to his people. And there are a number of covenants which are made throughout Scripture. They're made to God's people generally or they're made to an individual. But all of these covenants you can categorize into two types of covenants. There are unconditional covenants which are simply an absolute promise of what is going to occur irrespective of what else may happen. God's covenant with Abraham is a classic, unconditional covenant. For example, God said, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. It's an unconditional promise that was made, a promise that was ultimately fulfilled through the coming of Christ. It was a guaranteed promise of a future outcome, which was fulfilled through Christ. However, there are also what's called conditional covenants. In other words, if you do this, I will do that. The Mosaic covenant or the covenant of the law is an example of this kind of covenant. And you get this sense when you read um, passages of scripture like what is found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now in those verses, in Deuteronomy 28, in verse 1, it says... If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. Beautiful promise to his people, right? But it's if you obey, then you'll be blessed. 
Then you see in verse 15, he says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and you do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. It's a conditional covenant. If you do this, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you do not obey me, you will be cursed. The Lord, the law brought with it beautiful promises to protect and to preserve God's people. But at the same time, it was contingent or conditional on us holding up our side of the agreement. And as we've spoken about already, any form of covenant that was conditional on the faithfulness and the performance of God's people was always going to have difficulty. So verse 6 tells us that Christ is now the mediator of a superior covenant. And part of what makes this covenant superior is that it is established on what the author refers to as better promises. And he does this, he illustrates what these better promises are by using a beautiful quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. Now in verse 7 of Hebrews 8, the author acknowledges that there was a fault or a problem with the old covenant, which is why there was a need for a new or superior covenant. He says in verse 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. If there was nothing wrong with the old covenant, we never would have needed a new covenant. But in verse 8, 9, 8 to 9, the author is quick to point out that the fault associated with the old covenant was not on God's side of the covenant. It was on our side of the covenant. Verse 8 says it, that God found fault with the people. God was faithful to his covenant. God held up his side of the covenant. God did not change, but the faithfulness and the obedience of the people was the problem. To highlight this, the author then begins this quote from Jeremiah 31, which starts by highlighting that the coming new covenant would be different from the old covenant because although God was faithful to his people in leading them out from Egypt and redeeming his people, it was the people who did not remain faithful to the covenant. And not much has really changed in that regard, has it? Like Israel struggled with faithfulness to God all the way back then, so do we continue to struggle with our own faithfulness to God in today's world, don't we? Fully obeying God and carefully following him with all of our heart and soul and mind is an extremely high bar that none of us can perfectly live by. There are the distractions of this world which continually take our focus off him. There are temptations which continue to draw us in. There is an enemy who is actively seeking to oppose us and God's work in our lives. And there are, there are struggles and hardships which cause us to doubt or wrestle or even become angry with God. This is all part of being human. And it's not that we just justify it all away and say it's all okay for we're called to be conformed more and more into Christ's likeness through the power of his spirit. 
But what this does, nonetheless, is highlighted that there was always going to be a need for a new and better covenant. One that involved promises that were not conditional. Promises of our salvation that were not conditional, but were instead unconditional in nature because they were solely dependent on the faithfulness of God rather than the faithfulness of people. And it's these unconditional promises which are then touched on in the quote from Jeremiah, which is then produced here in Hebrews 8 in verse 10 to 12. First it says, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. In other words, God promises to give us a new heart. God's laws and his ways were no longer to be um, set out on stone tablets or scrolls, managed or adjudicated by an earthly priesthood in an earthly sanctuary. They were instead inscribed on the hearts of God's people through the Holy Spirit itself. God's ways are eternalized through the Holy Spirit rather than being an external set of standards which are imposed upon us. Our obedience, therefore, flows from an internal change rather than an external set of laws. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, describes this in slightly different words. It describes the same promise, but it says, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you and I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Under this new covenant, God's promise is to change us from the inside out. So that following him is not about an externally imposed set of standards or rules, but rather an extension of the work that has occurred in our heart. So the author starts here with a promise that under this new covenant we will receive a new heart. And then he moves on to saying that we'll not only receive a new heart, the rest, he continues to say, we'll also receive a new relationship. He says, I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. See, a new and changed heart brings with it a new and changed relationship with God. For we can, for the first time, truly know him. This new covenant was no longer about knowing the things about God or knowing things about his law. This new covenant was about knowing God himself. And this new and better promise is that we would know God ourselves, his character, his attributes, his word, and being able to enter into and engage in a personal relationship with him because we know him as our Lord and our God. And I love how this promise is reflected in the prayer of Jesus himself in John chapter 17 where Jesus himself says in verse 3 of that prayer, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have said. This is eternal life, that they may know 
you. I wonder if you would consider that you know God. Not just know about God, but that you would know him personally. Do you engage with him? Do you walk and do life and each and every day with him? Do you pray to him? These are all ways we enter into a new and better relationship that is promised to us, that's available to us through his new and better covenant. And we know from Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 that when we know God, we have life and a life that will continue for all eternity. So we've been promised a new heart, and we've been promised a new relationship. The final promise that we find in verse 12 is a new beginning. He says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Under the old covenant... The sins of the people were temporarily covered over by the sacrificial system. God's wrath against their sin was appeased for a time, but they were not ultimately, the sins of the people were not ultimately dealt with. But under this new covenant, there was a better sacrifice the sacrifice of God's one and only Son. The sacrifice whereby our heavenly high priest voluntarily laid himself down to be the sacrifice on the cross. The once and for all sacrifice that would deal with our sin completely and finally. So that through faith in him, these sins are remembered no more. They are forgiven we are given a completely fresh start. We're given a completely new beginning through the blood of the perfect Lamb of God. And don't we need to be reminded, reminded of that promise again and again and again? In Christ, our sins are remembered no more. They are forgiven. We don't need to hold on to our guilt. We don't need to hold on to the judgment that we feel for our mistakes. We don't need to hold on to the burden of our poor choices. For in Christ, we have a completely new beginning. We have a completely new relationship and we have been given a completely new heart. This covenant is a new covenant which is truly established on better promises. And as the author then says in the last verse, in verse 13, by bringing in this new and better covenant, he's made the first one obsolete and it will soon disappear. The old has now been fulfilled by the new What was nothing but a shadow has become the full reality in Christ. A reality which we can enter into and enjoy and be part of and experience through our faith 
in his son, Jesus Christ. See, we can remember from these verses that God's new and better covenant provides hope because it's founded on better promises. It provides us with hope because it's founded on better promises. In a world that is struggling to find hope at the moment, these better covenants provides us with hope. Because through Christ, we're given a new heart. Through Christ, we're given a new relationship with the living God. And through Christ, we are given a new beginning and our sins are remembered no more. So may God let these covenants and these promises provide us with hope and assurance during this challenging season that we find ourselves in. So we've got a new and better covenant, which is established through a better priest, our heavenly high priest, and so it can be trusted because it's dependent on that heavenly high priest and not on ourselves. And we've got a new covenant, which is established through better promises, so it also provides us with hope. I hope these truths from Hebrews 8 can be an encouragement to you during this season an encouragement to lean on and depend on, and so that we might look to his new and better promises as a source of hope and assurance of the fact that we have been made new through our great heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ. Let's trust in this new covenant because we can fully depend on Christ and then find hope in his better promises. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your new and better covenant. Lord, we thank you that it's a better covenant because it's been established through a better priest and it's been established through better promises, promises for a new heart, promises for a new relationship and promises for a new beginning. Lord, may we depend on you and praise you for the fact that our salvation can be trusted and this covenant can be trusted because it's dependent on you and not on us. And may we find hope in the better promises that are given to us through your word. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the better covenant we have access to through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may you journey with us. Help us to fix our eyes on you so we might depend on you and let these promises provide us with hope during these challenging seasons. And I pray this in your name. Amen.